Thank you, Jude. Lord, I pray that you will be in my words and in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you'll forgive me if I start with um, a story of of what I've been up to over the past um, couple of days. Um, Those of you who uh, are regulars here um, will know that I'm the curate, um, Tim, and uh, that means that I am, if you like, a trainee vicar, uh, and I was ordained this last July when I started here at St. Giles. Uh, And as part of my preparation for being an ordained ministry, I've had to um, go through three years of formal training. And I had the pleasure on Friday morning of um, going down to London to the college where I had studied for those three years for the graduation of me and all of my fellow students, which was a fantastic occasion. It was lovely to see everyone from all the different parts of the country where we're now doing our curacy stuff um, and just to to celebrate together. Um, It was a rather complicated morning in some ways. Um, The college where I studied, St. Melitus College, um, has um, two sets of degrees that it offers. Um, depending on how much theology you've studied before. Um, You can either do a master's if you've done a small amount of study, or if if you've done some study, or if you've done no formal study uh, previously, like me, you do a whole bachelor's degree, so it's a whole three years. And for some reason, best known to them, um, these degrees are given by different universities. So um, we have to have sort of two degree ceremonies in one. and there is a representative from each university there. And the representative from the first university came up to award the master's degrees. And she was a very lovely lady. And she was very complimentary about all the students who'd achieved their MAs. And that each of them had demonstrated fantastic academic proficiency. And that as a result of having this qualification, they'd all have many new doors open to them and that the university awarding the Greek degree um, was very proud of all, the, all of their efforts and that they themselves should be very proud of all that they'd done too, uh, which was brilliant as far as it went. But I was struck by the difference between this first lady, this first academic, and the second academic who handed out the bachelor's degrees from a different university. Um, So to to me, amongst others. Um, I've definitely had enough of study for the moment. Um, I'm handing over the master's baton to my good wife, Claire. uh, And so I will try and support her as much as she has supported me over the past three years. I'm not sure I'll be able to reach her standards, but we'll do our best. Um, But anyway, whereas the first academic spoke all about the students and their achievements, the second lady had a very different focus. And she congratulated all of us just the same and wished us all of the, uh, the best, all of great success in our, in our new endeavours, whatever they were going to be, whether it was in ordained ministry or, or some, some differently. Um, but after all of those congratulations to us, she stopped 
And she said to each one of us who had newly graduated, um, we'd all done what we'd done and we'd achieved what we had achieved, not primarily for ourselves. She said that above all, we had done all of that study because we want to achieve something for God, because we want to honour him, we want to be able to do our jobs better, be better spouses, be better parents, be better, better friends, be better colleagues, to live our lives better for God's sake and for God's glory. I'd like you just to to hold in the back of your minds when we look at today's passage the difference between those two ladies. Congratulations to all of us students. The passage today is the second of two parables that Luke tells us about in chapter 18 about prayer, how we should pray. What should be our posture, if you like, our spiritual posture when we pray? And so what our practice of prayer tells us about the attitude that each one of us has towards God in that, the relationship that we have with God and how that informs our lives. And the first passage, which we're not going to look at today, um, it's called the parable of the persistent widow, verses 1 to 8. And Luke there um, is telling us um, that um, Jesus is urging us never to give up praying to God, never to give up. He will hear us and respond us, even if it takes a long, 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 long time. He will be there and he will intervene. The second parable, the one that we are looking at this morning, of the Pharisee and the tax collector moves, if you like, from quantity in the first passage onto quality, from how often we should pray to how we should pray. And for those of you who are regulars, we're back to our old friends, the Pharisees, again. Um, Lee uh, and I have spoken several times over the past few weeks about the Pharisees, these, these sort of super-religious in the Israel of Jesus' time, and to whom he returns again and again, both as individuals to whom he directs um, some of his preaching personally, and also who who he frequently uses as examples when he's wanting to make points to his wider audience. And on this occasion, as we can see from Jesus' introduction in verse 9, Um, the story that he's telling is not addressed only to the Pharisees, but to a wider group. uh, Luke says that Jesus addresses this parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness. Or in a different translation, to some who trusted in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Um, Not only Pharisees are guilty of that sort of behaviour. So we're told to whom Jesus is speaking. What about the story itself? Well, it concerns these two figures, both of whom would have been very familiar to 
everyone who Jesus was speaking to. On the one hand, we've got the Pharisee, the the super-religious observer of the Jewish law. Um, In theory, by being so precise and so meticulous in their religious observance, these Pharisees should have been the closest individuals to God in that society. And then on the other hand, we've got this tax collector guy. Being a tax collector at the time of Jesus was perhaps the most reviled job that you could have. Not only did they extract money and tribute from the people of Palestine, they took that money and they paid it to the Roman occupiers of the Palestine in which Jesus lived. And if they were particularly good at their job, they could actually, if you like, take some bonus for themselves, you know, a sort of horrible profit-sharing agreement with the Roman occupiers. So they were particularly reviled by the Jewish community. And in fact, when Jesus um, is most fiercely criticised frequently by the religious authorities of the time, um, one of the things that they say is that he's spending all of his time hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. So you, you, can, you can see where in, the, where in the spectrum tax collectors fit. And so Jesus sets up this contrast between one person on the one hand, the Pharisee, who should have been theoretically greatly admired for his behaviour, and a second person, the tax collector, whose whole way of life was a source of anger and bitterness to Jesus' audience. And so these two men go up to the temple in Jerusalem. They go up to the the temple, the centre of the Jewish faith, on the top of the hill in Jerusalem. And they go to pray to the Lord God there. Many, perhaps the majority of Jesus' audience, would have expected Jesus to praise and to respect the Pharisee in the way in which he prays to the Lord. And they may also have imagined that the tax collector, given his background, would come out particularly badly. But the story that Jesus tells us here couldn't be further from that expectation. Let's look at what each of the two men does and what they both say. First, let's have a look at the Pharisee in verse 11 11 and 12. So, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. First of all, we notice that the Pharisee stands by himself. And that, this would probably have been um, right in the centre of the temple. Only certain people could go right into the centre of the temple. If you weren't of a particular um, sort of religious caste, you had to stay in the outer regions of the temple. So the Pharisee would have been able to go into a part of the temple which would have signified just how holy he was in the first place. And then he'd probably have stood out in the way that he dressed. Very, very self-conscious. And then in the way that he prays, he 
notes that he fasts twice a week. And most Jews wouldn't fast twice a week. They'd probably fast two or three times a year at specific festivals. But he is saying, I fast twice a week. Aren't I great? He gives a tenth of all that he gets. Again, this is a a sign of just how religious he is. Because a normal Jew would have given a tenth of specific things, but not of everything. So he's saying, I give a tenth of everything that I get. So he's really sort of puffing up his chest in his prayers to God. But above all, the Pharisee, although he starts his prayer by saying, God, he isn't really addressing his prayer to God at all. It's, I think, a bit of a giveaway that in the first two sentences of what he says... He uses the word I four times. The focus of his life is not God, it's him. His conversation, if you like, with God in this prayer um, bears no real similarity to what I hope we would think of as a prayerful conversation with God. He starts as well by saying to God that he's glad he's not one of those dreadful other people who he lists, the robbers and the evildoers, the adulterators, or even like this tax collector who he obviously sees out of the corner of his eye. And instead he congratulates himself for all of the ways in which he goes beyond what he should be doing in his religious observance. Um, And so really all in all he's saying, look at me, God. I'm so great, I'm so religious, I do everything that I'm supposed to do, and then I do more. And I do it in such a way that all of the other people here can see just how proficient a follower I am of you. And because I do that, I'm confident that you really owe me you really owe me something in return. You owe it to me to judge that I've been justified. And the passage uses the word justified. That means what he has done has made it right, made the situation between him and God right because of all the worthy things that this Pharisee has done. That's not really what Jesus' audience would have expected from a Pharisee, perhaps. But what about the other chap, the tax collector, the man who is the scourge of Jewish society, the one who is collaborating with the Romans, the one who probably would have been spat at in the street as he walked past. What does Jesus have to say about his behaviour here in the temple? Well, we're expecting him to be condemned. You know, we, this, this is a guy who is hated by the whole population. But Jesus has a surprise for us. Verse 13. But but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Firstly, the way in which the tax collector positions himself in the temple. So he's at a distance from the main precinct in the temple. It suggests that he's conscious of this huge gulf between who he is and God. In complete contrast, of course, to the Pharisee who processes into the centre of the temple to make himself as conspicuous as possible. And then we've got the tax collector's prayer itself. He's so in awe of God, his creator, that he doesn't even lift his eyes up, but instead he beats his breast in penitence. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus is absolutely clear which of these two men finds favour with God in the way in which they pray and what this shows of their relation to their Heavenly Father. If I can paraphrase the Lord's Prayer a bit, the Pharisee is interested in my kingdom coming, not thy kingdom coming. And the consequence of his self-exaltation is, as Jesus declares, that the Pharisees and those like him will be humbled by God ultimately. On the other hand, Jesus is equally clear. The tax collector's humility will be rewarded. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. The place in which these two men stand in the temple, the physical aspect of their prayer, that counts for nothing at all. What really counts is the spiritual positioning of their hearts in that prayer that they both make. God, in accepting the tax collector, he shows the sort of attitude that he responds to in all men and all women who approach him like this. God honours their humility. And this, this is a basic principle of the way in which God works, in which, if you like, his economy functions. Um, it's rather similar to um, a, perhaps a much more familiar phrase to all of us, which um, Jesus says in, uh, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's the, the paradoxical economy in which God works. What the world judges to be of value, God sees differently. Maybe on a human level, the Pharisee's comparison of his own behaviour with that of some others might have held a bit of water. It's possible that he was better behaved than the robbers and the evildoers and the adulterers with whom he does compare himself. But that really misses the point completely. Even the holiest of men and the holiest of women is so far short of God's infinite goodness that that really we have no hope of being able to get it right with him on our own. To be justified, to uh, justified with, um, with God without his own intervention.
And so like the tax collector, we have to first recognize this fact that without humbling ourselves before him, without acknowledging ourselves as sinners and asking him, begging him to extend his mercy to us, there isn't a way in which we can be reconciled to him. The tax collector recognises that from a heavenly perspective, the only possible response that he can make is to humble himself before God. So why does this question of humility matter so much? I think that the expression... Uh, when we talk about someone being full of themselves, full of himself or full of herself, is really helpful in understanding um, why this is the case. So if you're like the Pharisee and you're so focused on yourself that you, if you like, become full of yourself, there's just no room for anything else to get in. This, of course, is in complete contrast to the example that we're given of the perfect human life, that of Jesus. He lived his life, on the one hand, as saviour of the world, but on the other, not as the political revolutionary leader that all of the people around him expected him to be, when they knew that a Messiah was coming. Rather, he led through service, through service of others, to such an extent that he was prepared to die, to die that each one of us could be, and I use the the word that I used earlier, could be justified in front of God, that we would be made right with God. That is what Jesus does for each one of us. What's often thought to be the very earliest piece of writing about Jesus in Philippians, it's, an, it's a beautiful, it's, a, it's like a poem, part poem, part prayer. Philippians chapter 2 tells us exactly this. It says, in your relationships with one another, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But instead, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. This is the Son of God who makes himself nothing. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to death on the cross. If our lives are so full of stuff that isn't of God if we're so reliant on ourselves, on our own achievements, on our own possession, uh, possessions, on other equally imperfect people, however 
good or wonderful they may be in human terms, then we make mini-gods and idols of all of these things. And that means that there's just no room in our lives for God himself to enter in through the life and the teaching of Jesus that we see in the Gospels and through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our minds and our souls. I need to go down here for a moment because I've forgotten my prop. And I um, apologise to those of you who are on St Giles Alpha um, and who may have been on an Alpha course before because the illustration I'm going to use now is directly from that and was in fact directly from last week. But it's such a good illustration that I hope you'll forgive me for using it again today. If we're like the Pharisee in this parable that we've just heard, then we're like my right hand here. And we've got, if you can imagine, this Bible is all of the stuff of my life, all of the stuff that I'm filling my life with. And so God up there can't get to us down here because of all of that stuff that's blocking us from him up here. It's like um, the Pharisees' prayer with all the eyes in it. It prevents us from having a relationship with God. I'm full, but I'm full of stuff that is nothing to do with God. But what happens if we recognise in our humility, like the tax collector, that not only do we lead God at the centre of our lives, but also that we can't be in relationship with God, which he desperately wants us to be, unless we humble ourselves before him, before his infinite goodness, before his infinite mercy. And declare to him that we need his help. We said a few moments ago in the confession, which we use um, in the communion service before we come to communion. Almighty God, our heavenly father, we've sinned against you and against our neighbour in thought and word and deed, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault. What happens when we recognise this? And go on to ask God's forgiveness. And say, as we say in that confession, we are truly sorry and repent of all our sins. When we do repent, God's plan for each one of us comes into play. And because of the good news that comes with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, Jesus takes on to himself all of our stuff. And you see what's happened? There is no longer anything barring us from relationship, from full and open relationship with God because what Jesus does is takes that on himself, on the cross and off us. That's the cross's extraordinary message to each one of us. So the question for each one of us this morning is this. 
in what or in whom are we going to place our trust? And for what or for whom are we really going to live our lives? Returning to my graduation story that I started with, are we like the first speaker going to place our trust in ourselves, in our achievements, in our skills, in our own strength? Or as the second lady said, are we going to live our lives not with ourselves at the centre, but always referring to God and to our desire to live for him and for his glory? Do we have more in common with the Pharisee and his trust in himself, even though that may be in private rather than perhaps in public, in our real insides. Maybe we trust too much in ourselves and not place our trust in God. Or is each of us truly prepared, like the tax collector, to humble ourselves before God, trust in his mercy and live our lives for him? To where and to whom does each one of us look? Just close in a moment of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your astonishing mercy that even when we mess up as often as we do, we can come to you in the knowledge that when we truly say sorry, you forgive us. And we thank you for that gift in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. In his name, amen.